I V M. Welcome to States of Anarchy. My name is Hamsini Hariharan, and every week on the show, I try to make a little more sense of the world around us by tackling important themes in global affairs and foreign policy. Every fortnight, I speak to a guest, but today is our special Q and A episode where I answer listener questions. So let's dive straight into it. We have two questions today, which come from our Instagram handle at States of Anarchy, which you should be following if you aren't already. Our first question is from Taha, who asks, "Is the UN just a dummy body?" Thank you for your question, Taha. The United Nations or the UN has faced a lot of criticism in the recent years, but there's a lot to unpack in what it actually does. So, in 2016, on the UN's 70th anniversary, Sashi Tharoor, who was the former Under Secretary General of the United Nations, said that the call of the hour is a renewed, but by no means a retired UN. What does that mean? Does the UN need a major reform to adapt to changing times? Sure, but that doesn't mean that the world could function without an intervening international body like the United Nations. An ORF report quotes Shashitharoor again on saying that the UN's role as a global governance mechanism is incredibly crucial, and there's lots of evidence to back this argument. The United Nations intervention in a number of global catastrophes was necessary. In the 75 years since its conception, post the Second World War, the United Nations has successfully intermediated in many landmark historical events. And whether that's preventing the escalation of the Cold War or participating in peacekeeping efforts, aiding in strategic consultations, setting norms for decolonization and disarmament, and many, many things. In the change world post seventy-five years, of the UN, a reformed UN is indispensable. Now, the first and foremost goal of the United Nations is to maintain international peace and security, and this is also reinforced by the United Nations Security Council and the United Nations General Assembly. The Security Council takes the lead in identifying any potential threats to peace or acts of aggression, and then it calls on parties to a dispute to settle it by peaceful means. And it recommends methods of adjustment, or it recommends terms of settlement. Now, the General Assembly is the main deliberative, policy-making, representative organ of the United Nations, and the UN relies on tactics of preventative diplomacy and mediation, and deploying peacekeeping forces to counter terrorism and other threats. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, formulated in 1948. possibly one of the most important mechanisms of international law lays down rights that are inalienable to all human beings and since then the un has diligently protected human rights through legal instruments and on ground activities councils like the office of high commissioner for human rights and the human rights council oversee any human rights violations A big part of the united nations responsibility is also delivering humanitarian aid especially in war ravaged countries so after the aftermath of world war 2 the un has provided humanitarian relief from emergency on multiple accounts from helping refugees and children feeding the hungry healing the sick the un has stepped in to fill the gaps of national relief efforts the un charter in its preamble sets an objective quote 
to establish conditions under which justice and respect for obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained, end quote. What this means is that the United Nations undertook the onus to ensure that all international treaties are adhered to. If there was any breach, then the case would be heard in the International Court of Justice according to international law. And international law defines the legal responsibilities of states in their conduct with each other and their treatment of individuals within state boundaries. This branch of the UN also addresses and meets out punishments for war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and so on. So, as we can see, the UN isn't really sitting idle while states do as they please. A simple answer to your question about whether the UN is a dummy body would be no. But does that mean that the UN can do no wrong? It can't be touched on a high pedestal? Of course not. There have been enough instances where the UN's deafening silence on global issues has been frowned upon and heavily criticized. The UN isn't that different from most organizations voted into power. It dodges responsibility and accountability when something misfires. When things go right, the United Nations, like all governments, takes credit. But when things go wrong, it's the fault of the member states. Multiple people have pointed out that there's an internal credibility gap between the achievement and the objective of the United Nations. Now, the UN has made remarkable contributions, but what it hasn't done is hold developed countries accountable. Apart from fulfilling the official development assistance targets, developed countries have faced no external pressure or obligation to contribute to the further development of the whole world. And the UN also has its own power imbalances. Even though the United Nations is supposed to be impartial and not allow states to break international law, it doesn't really have mechanisms to prevent lapses. Consider interventions by the United States or the NATO into Libya, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and many countries in the African continent or Latin America. The UN has allowed the discourse on human rights to shield geopolitical motivations. Many scholars argue that the collective security model on which the UN is based is plagued by two problems, big power dominance and selective engagement. So unless the UN makes an active effort to reform itself to counter all of these drawbacks, its credibility will continue to suffer in the public eye and draw flack. How it will reform is anybody's guess. Our second question for the day comes from Manaswini on Instagram. She says, I would like to know how geopolitical relationships are and will be shaped by COVID responses. For example, Korea's first move was not to ban flights from other countries, but to ban flights of countries which had banned Korea. <laughs> Thank you for the question, Manaswini. Ever since the Chinese government first notified the World Health Organization, or the WHO, of COVID-19, narratives about where it started and how it started are very polarized. And this has led to an increase in tensions between many countries. Very glaring is the case of China and the United States. Then these political tensions influence how individual countries prepare for and cooperate with each other with responding to a pandemic. Of course, each country figures out its response depending on the severity of the outbreak, its own public health system, previous passport regimes, and its economy. For example, countries like Maldives or the Seychelles, which are heavily dependent on tourism, have been quicker to open up their borders to international travelers. 
On the other hand, consider a country like Australia that did not relax its borders even for its own citizens, threatening them with imprisonment or fines that went up to $66,000. Now, pandemics, disasters and other crises of a global nature don't really respect or care about national borders. In the past, countries have recognized this and they've coordinated their responses. Even if the World Health Organization this time around tried to organize a global response, most countries preferred to fight COVID-19 on their own terms. This resulted in some sort of competition because resources are scarce. Think back to the beginning of the pandemic when there weren't enough masks or PPEs or hand sanitizer, or even now when India doesn't have enough oxygen supplies. Most countries lack medical resources and the technological know-how required to tackle a pandemic. And while there are many global initiatives like COVAX, which provide vaccines to the developing world, they simply aren't enough. Now, various foreign policy thinkers blame the rise of populism and the stark gap in global leadership left by the United States under Donald Trump for this disjointed response. But despite who or what is to blame, the same experts say that the missing global effort indicates that there is a fundamental shift in global geopolitics. This is because state-led efforts to control the pandemic within sovereign borders have become important indicators for their success or failure. Success promises influence, while failure might result in questions over a government's legitimacy. That's why China was so intent on proving itself as a capable government. That's why all eyes have been on countries like the US, India and Brazil, where governments have come under so much criticism for how they handle the pandemic. Now, given the current situation where the global power dynamic hangs in the balance and resources are limited, protecting one's own citizens has gained the most importance for states. This is why even a moderate Joe Biden-led US government is following an America-first policy when it comes to vaccinations and hesitating to waive intellectual property rights on vaccines or lift embargoes on essential raw materials. But this doesn't mean countries won't cooperate with each other. This is where geopolitical relationships become especially significant. Big powers have access to medical technologies, which developing states are in dire need of. So they offer vaccines and other medical equipment to developing nations in exchange for geopolitical gains. China, for example, has been using vaccine diplomacy in order to get a strong geopolitical foothold in Southeast Asia and South America, though with mixed results. For example, China reportedly, through unofficial brokers, is even believed to have offered Paraguay COVID-19 vaccines on the condition that Paraguay severes diplomatic ties with Taiwan. And this is significant because Paraguay is one of 15 nations which maintains full diplomatic ties with Taiwan. So this means that pre-existing relationships are important. As Manaswini pointed out, South Korea first banned flights from other countries which had already banned flights from South Korea. A lot of this is driven not by health concerns, but by geopolitics. Surprise, surprise. Air bridges or travel bubbles are all about reciprocity. So countries take tit-for-tat measures in banning others or opening up, even if infections haven't been completely rooted out yet. That individual calculus, it's changing and it's dynamic, but it's definitely going to shape globalization and the post-pandemic world. So this is how geopolitical relations are shaping the world right now. What we will have to look out for in the future is obviously 
how vaccines play out. Already, there have been huge criticisms about how rich countries are hoarding them. So vaccine diplomacy, intellectual property rights are definitely areas to watch out for. The other important things, of course, is to look at how variants spike infections. The most important thing is to look at rebuilding the world economy. It's unlikely that we will ever go back to the world we knew anytime soon. I, for one, can't wait for this pandemic to be over. On that note, take care of yourself and your loved ones. If the pandemic is making you question the world, you can always ask for help. I answer listener questions about global affairs and foreign policy every fortnight in our special Q&A episode like today. So do send them across. You can email me on ivmstatesofanarchy at gmail.com. On Instagram, my handle is at statesofanarchy. And on Twitter, I'm Hamsni H. This episode was scripted with the help of Ayushmita Bhattacharjee and Kartikeya Reddy. You can listen to States of Anarchy on the IVM podcast app, but also on Google, iTunes, Spotify, CastBox, or whatever you're listening to right now. Keep your ears open. We'll be back next week. <laughs>